According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me tonight once again in uh, Numbers chapter 8 as we get started. We're going to be in Numbers 8, Numbers 9, and then Leviticus 1 through 3. So we've got quite a bit of ground to cover tonight. This is day 49, the Levites and various offerings is the title that uh, Ron Rhodes has given to this day. It's also Wednesday night, so we want to take time for some questions and answers. Any that are here in uh, in the uh, live studio audience, uh, we let you guys go first. Also, uh, some that have come in by email, and also any that come in with uh, the live chat that's been enabled on the uh, the YouTube stream. So it could be that we'll have questions from hither and yon, as they say. Let's open the word of prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for the study of the word of God, let's bow before him in his glory. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thankful for grace and truth and rejoicing in the privilege that we have to assemble together. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for the freedom that our nation possesses and the blessing that we have to assemble together to receive instruction. We humble ourselves before you and ask, Father, for your faithfulness as you lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, questions. Our first question, actually I got an email. Dean sent me something earlier. To be an assistant pastor, can it be a poimain didaskalos? Yes. Uh, that's the pastor-teacher gift, can be an assistant pastor, or an evangelist, yes, or an exhorter, yes, or any other gift functioning as an assistant. The fact is, yes. In fact, not only as assistant pastor, uh, even pastor, when it comes down to that, uh, by virtue of the fact that we have terminology today that's not found in the New Testament. So senior pastor, assistant pastor, executive pastor, youth pastor, um, senior pastor, young adults pastor, uh, you know, on and on it goes. They've got executive pastors and all kinds of other administrative things. Um, anyway, the, the point is, pastor is a gift. It's not an office. Uh, there's only two offices in the church. That's the overseers and the deacons. And uh, you have that in the introduction to Philippians 1.1 and other places. To the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And when you turn to 1 Timothy 3, when you turn to Titus and you're looking for offices in the church, again, it's overseers and deacons. And so uh, pastor is a gift, overseer is an office, elder is a maturity status. And, uh, and so when you have a, a believer that's at the maturity status of elder that would be considered to function within the office of overseer, then it could really come from any particular gift. Um, however, since elder overseers are expected to shepherd the flock of God among you, then it makes sense that the most naturally suited gift to do that shepherding responsibility would be the gift of pastor-teacher, because that's the one that has the extraordinary grace enablement for, uh, for shepherding. Um, but it's, it's a point of fact, Ralph up in Kansas was an assistant pastor, and he's the pastor-teacher, and the senior pastor over him was an evangelist by gift. And so, I mean, it can work if, you know, obviously the men need to be humble and work together and, and, uh, and, and all of that. What is an accelerating process to discovering one's spiritual gift? Pray, 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 pray. And uh, start serving. Jump on board any, any ministry you can. And uh, you don't have to start your own ministry. Plug into somebody else's ministry and just start serving. And you're going to notice 
what is being empowered and what is not being empowered. And that's, uh, that's the clue. Because the spiritual gift in this is a supernatural empowerment of God the Holy Spirit. And when you start observing that empowerment, you'll know what your gift in this is. All right. There's also a series of C's. When I taught an intermediate charismatology, we taught it as consideration, confirmation, consecration. Uh, we, we went through a series of C's, and I'd have to refresh my memory on that. Um, but yeah, you consider what it might be, and uh, you start praying about it, and then you start serving, and you see what it is that uh, gets empowered. The third and final question, what does it take in the attitude to keep a childlike faith operational into your 80s? Well, 30 years from now, I'll let you know. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, and I see it. You know, with folks in their 80s, Jim was in his 90s, Jim turned 90, and, and you know, that to have that childlike faith is, I think, um, it's the humility that, that says, uh, I don't care how long you've been in the Word of God, there's still so much more to, to learn. And it's the opposite of being a know-it-all. You, know, you practically just say, I, I don't know anything. I'm, I'm beginning to learn a few things. And uh, Ralph would say he's, he's starting to learn things now that he's never known his whole life, and he was ordained 70 years ago. So, you know, it just gives you an idea that uh, that's a good question. Thank you for that. All right. I'm going to mark those as answered. Were those answers sufficient? Okay. Additional questions tonight. Also on YouTube. Do we have anything on YouTube? Not yet? Okay. Let me know. You can raise the flag and give me the signal. We have so many flags and signals these days I lose track of which ones are which. All right, we do have a microphone ready to go, so who's running the microphone? Okay. Sharon is the substitute microphone runner. It means you have to stand up and cross the room if somebody raises their hand, though. Okay. All right, we're going to go to Cynthia. Cynthia has a question. In Acts, either chapter 16 or 19, uh, where Paul is explaining about his um, incident, if you will, on the Damascus Road. Mm -hmm. And in there it says, uh, in the Greek, it talks about uh, the Lord was speaking to to Paul in Hebrew. That's what I've seen. Mm -hmm. But then some uh, of the translations say Aramaic. Can you explain that? So, yeah, this, it's a Greek word for um, the Hebrew language, but possibly could be referring to the Aramaic language as well. Um, spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect in Acts 21.40 maybe. Also in 22.2 and in 26.14. This is probably the one you were speaking of because this is the Damascus Road. They had fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect. And then the footnote would say, or Jewish, i.e. Jewish Aramaic. And so, um, yeah, it's a puzzle. And when we, uh, we, we can read it in the Greek and you have there the Hebraidi dialecto. Um, so this is a Greek language person talking about a Hebrew speaking person, Right. And are we talking about a Hebrew ethnicity talking? 
in the language of a, of a Hebrew ethnic type of person, or in the Hebrew language. See, and you could take it either way. Um, it, it used to be very common to understand that Hebrew was almost extinct in the first century, that only the, only the, the scribes, the priests, only it was a liturgical language, it was not a spoken language. And everybody in, in, in uh, Israel spoke Aramaic. And that was, that was not even questioned for, for years and until probably the last 20 years now is starting to re-examine that and, and starting to consider that maybe Hebrew was more widely spoken than, than earlier generations gave it credit for. So um, yeah, I, I'd say that's up in the air. Um, anyway, is that a non-answer to a question? That Thank you. Uh-huh. It wasn't Greek, I'll tell you that. No, it's kind of fun uh, uh, dealing with languages and dealing with, you know, what do what do people of that language call themselves, which is oftentimes very different. You know, we say they're speaking German, they would say Alf Deutsch, right? They're speaking Deutsch. Or the Spanish people would say they're speaking Alemani, that the, the Spanish word for German is different than the English word for German or the German word for German. And so some of those considerations become uh, become puzzles also. All right, well, I appreciate those. All right, last call for uh, YouTube, anything? All right. So when I get the angry email in the morning, I'll say, hey, we had the channel open. Chat was ready to go. All right, thank you for that. Let's go to, uh, let's go to our class for tonight. Thank you for running the microphone. And we're going to start with Numbers chapter 8. So again, what we have to cover here tonight is Acts eight, uh, Numbers 8, Numbers 9, Really, only half of Numbers nine. We've already done half of it, and then uh, and then we're into Leviticus. Okay, first three chapters of, Le- of Leviticus tonight. Chapters four and five tomorrow. So, um, we have specific instructions for the lighting of the lampstand. Where we left off uh, last night, dealing with uh, the offerings that had come in. That on the night that the tabernacle was finished, these twelve tribal princes arrived, and they were bringing gifts. They were bringing free will offerings gifts for the dedication of the altar. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you mount the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron therefore did so. He mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the, the, the verb is a verb of raising up, lifting up. Mount, I suppose, is as fine a translation as any. Or maybe light, lighting the, the, the lamps, but have, making sure that they were angled in, as such that if you have the menorah that's right there on the northern side, or is it the southern side, of the holy place, when it's shining out, it only has to shine one direction. It doesn't have to light up the, the tent right behind it, right? It only has to shine out the one direction towards the, the middle of the tent, towards the table of showbread. All right, so this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work, according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. And yeah, when you see the details, everything that was instructed, everything that was constructed was exactly to the specifications that God had determined. So that's verses 1 through 4. Like Aaron and his sons for a consecrated priesthood, the Levites also are set apart for their consecrated work of service. And in Numbers 8, verses 5 through 22, now we have the Levites that are being consecrated. The Levites are the non-priestly Levites, okay? Keeping in mind that there's three divisions of Levi, and we're going to see those divisions again tonight. Um, we have uh, 
the family of Aaron though. Remember Aaron uh, was of the Kohath division. Aaron uh, and his family are the ones that are priests. Everybody else that's not a descendant of Aaron is not a priest. They're simply a Levite. Okay, Does that make sense to everybody? Even though Aaron himself was a Levite. He was from the tribe of Levi. He was a priest though. He was not called a Levite and neither were any of his descendants. So the consecration there, again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them for their cleansing, sprinkle purifying water on them and let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes and they will be clean. So it's quicker and faster than the the priest or the high priest and the sanctification there, but still it is a ritual and it is uh, expected of every Levite. Be clean shaven. Then uh, let them take a bowl with its grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, and a second bowl you shall take for a sin offering. Again, do do these Levites sin? Why are they bringing a sin offering? Okay, We asked that yesterday with the dedication offerings. Sin offerings are in tandem with a whole lot of other offerings and don't confuse the title with rebound, with 1 John 1, 9, with somebody must have committed a personal sin so now he's confessing his sin and, a, and an animal has to die. That's not the procedure in a sin offering. Okay, We'll have more to say on that when we get to chapters 4 and 5 of Leviticus. All right, presenting the Levites before the tent, presenting the Levites before the Lord. And uh, the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Laying on of hands as an identification. The the non-Levites will recognize that the tribe of Levi was set apart to serve on their behalf, in their place, to represent them. And so they're identifying with the Levites and this service. And Aaron shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel. Those are fun offerings. They're not, uh, they're not animal offerings that are killed. They're not you know, dying offerings. But it's, it's a waving. It's waving before the Lord like a sheaf of grain or a loaf of bread. It's a waving as before the Lord. And, and, then, and they weren't physically picking up each Levite and waving them around. But the idea is, is as each Levite was coming forward, washed and cleansed and prepared for duty, they, it was as if they were a wave offering before the Lord. Alright, and the Levites will stand before Aaron and his sons to present them as a wave offering to the Lord. The priests would be presenting the Levites as a wave offering. So thus you should separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. I've always thought of this as the Old Testament analogy to pastors and deacons, uh, the priests and the Levites, for example, the, the spiritual service and the, and the logistical support to, uh, to conduct the, the spiritual ministry. All right, so they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I've taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. That was a, a reference to something earlier in, uh, in Exodus that we've already, already gone past. All right, so the Levites are serving in lieu of the firstborn service that had initially been the instructions. Okay, so that gets us down through verse 22. And we get a paragraph on retirement here. That gets my attention. All right. The career of a Levite is designated as beginning at age 25 and ending at age 50. And we have verses 23 through 26 to describe this. At 25, they entered apprenticeship. At 30, they entered full service. At 50, they entered their retirement. 
however, in times of unusual circumstances, the beginning age was dropped to 20. And we see that later in the Old Testament history. That gets spelled out in uh, Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 3 and verse 8. So the last part of Numbers chapter 8 that's talking about this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward they shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting. But at the age of 50 years they shall retire from service in the work and not work anymore. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting. You know, like we have a lot of judges these days that are retired, but then they, they, uh, they pick up side gigs and they work. They do vacation relief and other things that they do uh, as uh, as retired judges. And so uh, these retired priests and these retired Levites may likewise continue to be assistants in, uh, in those older years. All right. The reference to age 30 being the full service is, uh, comes to us from chapter 4, Numbers chapter 4 and verse 3, from 30 years and upward even to 50 years. So that's the main service, it's a 20 year span from age 30 to age 50, but beginning with age 25 you can start your five year seminary, you can start your uh, apprentice uh, ministry there. Alright, so there's issues on that. None of this, of course, applies to the church age. Uh, there's no minimum age, maximum age. There's nothing stipulated in the New Testament for, uh, for church age pastor teachers in any respect. It does say uh, that he cannot be a novice, so you don't want a brand new believer, somebody that hadn't been saved very long, be, uh, being ordained as a pastor. But uh, that's not an age requirement. That's, a, that's an experience requirement in terms of uh, being saved and being trained as a pastor. So, uh, for example, we don't know how young Timothy was when Paul said, let no one despise thy youth, and uh, different aspects there. And likewise, there's no maximum age by which the uh, pastor has to be retired out of his lampstand. Nothing like that exists in the New Testament, other than perhaps some people that look at this passage as a pattern and try to find a New Testament adaptation of this for, uh, for the church age. All right. I do remember in my own case that uh, there was a pastor who chose not to participate in my ordination because he did feel like uh, I was under 30 and, and, uh, and uh, anyway, that's his, his call. And, uh, but I, I, my opinion was I wasn't trying out to be a Levite. I was, uh, <laughs> I was standing for ordination as a church age pastor teacher. So anyway, be that as it may. Let's go on to chapter 9. The tabernacle was erected on the first day of the first month of the second year of Israel's exodus. We saw that uh, in Exodus 40 and verse 1, and we see uh, other references to that here in Numbers chapter 9. As the Lord speaks to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So it's been a whole calendar year since the first Passover when they were redeemed. And so the sons of Israel have to observe their first free Passover in the wilderness, and that's what happens here. We do have um, some other things that take place. We saw last night the 12 days of the princes bringing their offerings, overlapping with the uh, ordination of Aaron and his sons because they were consecrated over eight days. Uh, That's described in Leviticus 8, Exodus chapter 40. So in these notes for Numbers chapter 9, I'll just give you five short points. And this is not the only way to reconcile these things. 
but I think when you're taking a look, when you're, when you're putting uh, Exodus chapter 40, Leviticus chapter 8, Numbers chapter 7, and, and you're putting those kind of in a, in a, in a, in a link, in a, in a synchronization with one another, then, you know, we, we make the best educated guesses we can, and then we have some uh, intellectual honesty with other people maybe that disagree, and they have a different way to reconcile or to link together, to synchronize uh, Exodus 40 with Leviticus 8 with Numbers 7. I don't have any problem with that, okay? Because the fact is we're taking three chapters from, from three different books, from Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers, and we're finding that they are connected because what links them together is the completion of the tabernacle. And then uh, we say, okay, the gifts are coming from the tribal princes. Aaron and his sons have to be ordained. These Levites have to be consecrated. And uh, so we're, we're putting them together in, uh, in some kind of a connection. And that's what these notes are attempting to do. I may revise these down the road because now that I think about it, um, all those priests, uh, I mean all those tribal princes we saw last night bringing all those animals, there was a tremendous amount of sacrifices going on for 12 straight days and uh, I'm, I'm wondering if Aaron and his sons were, might not be available to, to do all those sacrifices if they were being set apart doing their own sacrifices for their own ordinations and, and whatnot. So um, anyway, I'm willing to, uh, to revisit that in, in a future study. On the 14th day of this month, it was time for Israel to observe their second Passover. And so uh, if you do put those 12 days in right from the first day, then you get that out of the way before, uh, before day 14 comes along. And now you can have the ordained and functioning priesthood up and running for, uh, for the first Passover here in the wilderness. So that's Numbers 9, uh, verses 1 through 14. One interesting thing about this is that as we see it in uh, that they're doing this at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, verse 6 tells us there were some men though who were unclean because of a dead person. So they could not observe Passover on that day so they came before Moses and Aaron on that day and they say we're, we're missing out here. And, uh, and, and you know there were plenty of things that would make you unclean, not necessarily sinful, if you conducted a funeral, if you buried a loved one, if you, uh, and even uh, marital relations would leave the man and his wife unceremonially unclean. Um, there was any number of things that might do that. Anyway, Moses actually gets an, a, 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 an addendum to the Exodus 12 Passover instructions, which finds out now that you can actually have a makeup test. You can have a makeup Passover uh, in the very next month. And so uh, that's what gets provided here. The Lord tells Moses, if any of you or your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe Passover to the Lord in the second month on the 14th day at twilight. They shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Shall leave none of it over until morning. Basically, all of the procedures are the same. It's just a month later. Okay, So on the 14th day of the second month instead of the 14th day of the first month. However, that is a concession that is not uh, uh, an option. If uh, if you have the option for the first one, do the first one or you're in uh, rebellion against God. The man who is clean, who's not on a journey, in other words, if you don't have an excused absence, uh, if you're just a, a, a sluggard and don't feel like doing it this month and you want to do it next month, no, that's not why it's provided. If you're clean, if you're not on a journey and you neglect to observe the Passover, that person shall be cut off from among his people. 
There, I've got a future study on that coming up uh, later in Leviticus. What does it mean to be cut off uh, as, uh, as that idiom expresses? And uh, does, does man do that or does God do that? Is that a court proceeding or is that a divine judgment function? What does that mean to be cut off? We'll deal with that. All right. If an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to the Lord. We're not supposed to use alien anymore, but the Bible uses it. So this is a non-Jewish person, somebody that's not uh, belonging to the nation of Israel, but they happen to be there. They're presently located in the land of Israel. And uh, they want to observe the Passover. Well, they shall do so, but they've got to follow all the rules. One statute, both for the alien and for the native of the land. All right. The final item that we want to synchronize with all of this is how long was it before the death of Nadab and Abihu? Well, that's something else. It comes up in Leviticus chapter 10. And it may have occurred during the final four days of the princely gifts, or it may have occurred during the Passover or during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We're not, we don't know the precise day that it happened, and when we get to Leviticus 10, we'll see the, uh, we'll see the event itself as it happens. Um, but again, trying to reconcile it with Numbers 9 or Numbers 7 or Leviticus 8 or Exodus 40. I think there's uh, some flexibility with, with putting these together. If, if God had wanted us to have a more you know, precise sequence of events, he would have written it that way, but he didn't. So Genesis is written for Genesis purposes. Exodus is written for Exodus's purposes. Leviticus is written for Leviticus's purposes. Numbers is written for Numbers's purposes. And there's a lot of intersection in all those books. But each of them has their own purposes as to why they're written in the way that they are. And then Deuteronomy, of course, a generation later for uh, uh, similar, similar reasons. Okay. And then we saw this already, verses 15 through 23. That was on the, the day that the tabernacle was finished. And the cloud got so thick, Moses couldn't even get inside there in, uh, on that glorious day. Okay, well this gets us then to Leviticus. Are you ready for the blood and guts? Are you ready for the gore? Are you ready for dead animals and entrails and blood and all kinds of ashes and everything? Okay, Leviticus is a messy book. And it's supposed to be messy. And the, as messy as it gets, it conveys, a, uh, it conveys the messiness of sin. It conveys how messy we are as fallen creatures and how holy God is and how in the world can an unholy people approach a holy God? Well, if the holy God con- uh, condescends to allow us to approach Him and if He provides sanctifying sacrifices by which we can comprehend doctrine and appear before him rightly adjusted to his righteousness, then we've got the book of Leviticus figured out. Okay, It's as simple as that. This is how sinners can approach a holy God. And there's a whole lot of ritual that goes into that for the Old Testament covenant nation, the, the theocratic covenant nation of Israel. All of that was shadow doctrine and typology that we can relate to today in the substance, in the reality of how we approach a holy God. So it's a good book for a lot of reasons, and, and we'll deal with that. The Levitical instructions of this book are divinely revealed to Moses and recorded for our instruction. And in fact, the Hebrew name for this book comes from the very first words uh, the Lord called to Moses. And um, so, you know, in the Hebrew, they would call this Wayikra, because you have Wayikra to Moses, the Lord. Okay? Anyway, it's Wayikra. Or Leviticus is a simpler way. 
So the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. All right, I'm going to stop there before I get too much further. Um, there's a whole lot of coloring that's happening there. I may leave that on or I may turn that off. Uh, and, and I might ask you after class, was that distracting or was it useful or was it ridiculous or all of the above? Let me know. Um, but I did a significant amount of coloring through the first seven chapters of, of Leviticus just so that I could keep the terms straight myself as we're, as we're working our way through. Because okay? it's all about the korban. It's all about what we're bringing. It's all about what we are gifting to the Lord in a korban as unto the Lord. And so we're bringing an offering. We're, bringing, we're, we're giving a gift. We're offering an offering. Okay? And, and is offering a noun or is it a verb? Both, right? We're offering an offering. And that's what we do when we're gifting a gift. And uh, when we're sacrificing a sacrifice, you see how this works? And this is, it's pretty redundant, but Hebrew likes doing that. So we're going to do that. The time frame of this book is not clear. And there are a few clues within the text itself. The consecration of Aaron and his sons, we read about that in Leviticus 8 and 9, would seem to correspond to the uh, erection of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. Uh, Secondly, the death of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. And the cursing of the name of the Lord in Leviticus 24. They are the only other narrative clues that we have in the book. So if you're accustomed to Genesis and Exodus that had all kinds of stories and action and things were going on and events and places and that's not Leviticus. Okay, Leviticus is a whole lot of God talking to Moses and saying tell Israel to do this. All right. Most of the book is verbal instructions from the Lord to Moses about how the priesthood was going to function. It's a worship manual for the Levitical priesthood. The remainder is written record of the verbal communication from the Lord to Moses. And then Moses had to convey it to Aaron and and all the priests and all the Levites and all the people. that this is how it was going to happen. The body of legislation recorded here was given to Moses on Sinai and likely recorded by Moses during the nearly year-long construction of the tabernacle. There's no question that the, the paragraphs, the chapters that are, that are basically uh, recipes or instruction manuals for how to do a peace offering, how to do a sin offering, how to do a, 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 a trespass offering, all of that, each of those undoubtedly was, was composed during the year that they were sitting there at Sinai, right, while the tabernacle was getting built but then compiled later into the order and the structure and the format that we have it now as Leviticus with other chapters sprinkled through like the Nadab and Abihu death and the the other events that happen along the way. These instructions are designed to show the Father's will in appropriate worship. And it might seem kind of strange to turn to the New Testament to introduce Leviticus, but I'm going to do it anyway. When, when Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well and she wants to get her questions answered about Mount Zion or Mount Gerizim and, and who has it right or the Jews right or the Samaritans right and which mountain is the holy mountain and how do we approach God? She had a lot of questions. And Jesus said, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
And we better pay attention to that. God the Father, there's a lot of things He delegates to the Son, there's a lot of things He delegates to the Holy Spirit, but here is something that He doesn't delegate. God the Father does this personally. And what He does is He seeks worshipers. God the Father seeks such persons to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is actively seeking worshipers. Okay? Which I find interesting. It's like, you know, some people think pastors are actively seeking church members. You know, which honestly is not my case. I, you know, I, I pastor the, the ones that God gives me, but I'm not out there trying to, trying to, you know, scrounge up as many as I can or, or bring them in here or by hook or by crook trick them into coming in here or whatever else. If God brings them, I'm, I'll shepherd them. I'm not seeking. Okay, that's the other thing. And seeking, I, I would view that as self-promotion or self, I'm not into that. I just want to stay faithful to whatever God gives me. But the Father seeks such to be His worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Well, says who? Says God, that's who. Okay, God has every prerogative as sovereignty to determine the, the basis upon which He's approached. And if he says that something is worthy of, of approaching him, then that's what's worthy of approaching him. And if he doesn't say that it's worthy of approaching him, like where did Cain get the vegetable idea? Where did that come from? Okay, It didn't come from God. God had taught animal sacrifices when he clothed Adam and Eve with the animal skins. And Abel obviously got the memo because he brought the blood offering from the, the, uh, the sheep of the flock. So the instructions in Leviticus are designed to show the Father's will and appropriate worship. The who, what, where, when, why, and how of how human beings can approach the glory of God. Because remember, when you get into that Holy of Holies, you are standing before the Shekinah glory of God the Father. And if you're not there on the right day, or if you're the wrong person, if you're not there with the right sacrifices, if the, the, the smallest thing is done wrong going in there, you're not coming out alive. Standing before that glory is, is deadly. So these instructions in Leviticus develop an extensive ritual of external deeds with tremendous internal spiritual significance. And it's because ritual must be grounded in reality. I hope we don't get lost with, wait a minute, was that a bull? Was that a goat? Was that a sheep? Was it a male sheep, a female sheep? How do you tell the difference? Is this a, you know, is this a whole burnt offering? Do we get to eat any of this? Where's the blood getting smeared? Where are the, uh, where are the ashes being dumped? There, all of the logistics and the details, honestly, bores me to tears. Okay, and I, I'm the kind of guy that if if, if I can, I'm not gonna I'm never gonna be a Levitical priest. I'm never gonna offer a burnt offering. I'm never gonna do any of that. And so I want to know the doctrine and the details. Okay, I'll learn them because all Scripture is God breathed and profitable. I'll learn them because I got to teach them. But. Um, it, they, they just don't light a fire under me like First Timothy does, okay, or Second Timothy, or Ty. Is that fair? Okay. If not, then I'll have to answer for that. But all right. Sh- a shadow ritual gives imperfect instruction until the shadow is unfolded. Remember, we we saw this out of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter eight, Hebrews chapter ten. All those Levitical priests they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. The substance belongs to Christ. We function in the substance. Okay? Hebrews 10.1 The law is only a shadow of the good things to come. Cannot 
and not the very form or substance of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So we're going to study burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, trespass offering, all of those things. They're shadow doctrine. They point to Christ. We have the hindsight of the church age to look back and to see that we can make the, uh, the connections, we can apply the doctrine, we can thank God we're not Levitical priests, okay, which I do every day, and then we can make sure, though, that we don't miss any of the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, imperatives that come, okay, the sense of urgency, because we do function in the reality. Even though the ritual system of worship was external, Old Testament believers understood that the real issues were internal. Even in the Old Testament, they knew this. Okay, David would write in Psalm 51, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is in David's confession in Psalm 51. Okay? Remember, David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. There was nothing in Leviticus that was going to help him at all. Okay, All that Leviticus was going to do was condemn him. And so what could he do? He could, he could throw himself on the mercy of the Lord. The uh, broken spirit, the broken and contrite heart, all he could do is confess. When Nathan the prophet exposes him, his only option was just fall on his face and, and confess and repent and, and uh, plead for the, the God of grace. Isaiah 1, 11 through 15. The Lord calls uh, Jerusalem Sodom and Gomorrah. He's name calling, and that gets your attention, right? Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's talking to Jerusalem, but he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. That, that, that drives the point home. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Or like my mom would say, who dragged, who dragged mud all through my kitchen? Okay, and it was me almost every time. But the Lord is saying, who is defiling my temple? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. You think you're covering your tracks as you have all this religious ritual going on. No, you're not covering anything. You're defiling my courts. And God says it stinks. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. I become a, they've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. That's why we start every Bible class with silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship. Let's stand before His presence in, uh, in purity. Hosea 6.6 6, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is the text that Jesus quoted a couple times. He told the Pharisees in Matthew 9 go and learn what this means. And He quoted Hosea 6.6 6. And they obviously didn't do it because in chapter 12 he says, you didn't do it, did you? If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. It's that same Hosea 6, 6 passage in chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, he said, go and learn it. In Matthew 12, he said, you never learned it. And he's right. They never learned it. The Pharisees especially were so wrapped up in the externals because they could do it better than anybody. And since they could do it better than anybody, they could make up new rules and do that better than anybody. 
And, uh, and they were the best. They were the best. And Paul was the best of the best. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. And uh, you've got to have the internal reality or the external ritual is worthless. All right, so with that as a backdrop, we can cover three of these chapters tonight. <laughs> Not in the gory details, because there's just no time for that. Any offering must be brought from one's own possessions, that is the herd of the flock, not a wild animal that doesn't cost you anything. Okay? You don't just you know, come across a random wild animal somewhere and say, oh, oh, here's my sacrifice for next time I go to temple. No, it doesn't work like that. Bring an offering, the verb is kareb, the offering itself is the korban, and uh, a couple of vocabulary studies there we won't have time for, but you're going to see them, everything that's kareb or korban I put this green circle with the with the kof in there. So every time you see that green circle with a kof in there, that's the uh, karav and the korban, and it saturates all seven of these chapters. You're bringing a, uh, you're gifting a gift. You're coming near with an offering. The first offering described is the burnt offering with three financial levels available. The uh, the the top of the line rich offering is going to be the bull. The middle uh, middle class offering is going to be the flock. The, uh, the, the, the poor of the land can bring the birds. Okay? So it doesn't matter what income bracket you're in, you can bring one of these animals for your burnt offering. It's called an olah, a whole burnt offering from the verb Allah that means to ascend. And so the smoke goes up before the Lord as a sweet smelling savor and the entire thing belongs to God. Every bit of it. You, n- none of it's going to be eaten. None of it's going to be for human enjoyment. It's, it's for God's good pleasure. All right. And it's, this is specifically mentioning in connection with the kafar, the atonement. Sometimes the burnt offering is called the atonement offering. But we actually have atonement in several of the offerings, including the sin offering too, by the way. So you can't, it doesn't help sometimes. We, I think we complicate things with some of the labels we assign to it. Let's just call this one the whole burnt offering and, and let it go at that, the golah. All right, so you have options as far as your income level, from the herd, from the flock, or from the birds. The basic procedures, though, are all the same, regardless of the animal brought. These, the animal must be a male without defect. Okay, Can't use any female animals for the whole burnt offering. A male without defect. And the offerer is the one who brings it. The offerer is the one who slays it. Lays his hand on the head of the burnt offering to identify with the substitute. The offerer is the one that slits the throat and slays the animal. Not the priest. The offerer kills the animal. The offerer also skins and cuts up the animal. The offerer also washes the entrails. So what's the priest doing this whole time? What are the Levites doing this whole time? Well, they will take the blood. They will take the body pieces. They will arrange them on the altar because the offerer isn't touching the altar. All right, it's only the priests that are touching that altar. The offerer needed a mediator between him and God, so the priesthood was designated to take the offering and present it before the Lord. The priest offered up the blood. Okay, the priest didn't kill the animal, the, the, the person killed the animal, but the priest offered up the blood. The priest arranged the wood and arranged the fire. The priest burned up the entire animal. This offering was to make atonement for the worshiper. The verb is kafar. It's uh, colored there with the orange highlight and then the 
arc across the top, which means to cover. Okay, Kafar means to cover. It is not a removal of the sin, but it is the covering of the sin until such time as Jesus Christ dies on the cross and removes the sins. Right? The blood of bulls and goats cannot remove the sin. Only Jesus can do that. But this offering placed the worshiper in a position of acceptance before God as God was satisfied with the blood of the substitute. And the sacrificial atonement was beneficial until such time as the once and for all sacrifice will be made. This is like Passover where he sees the blood and he passes over because he's looking forward. The doctrine of this comes in Romans 3.25. Jesus Christ is the one whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. 2,000 years of passing over sins waiting for your son to go to the cross to remove them. And God was faithful each step of the way. This offering was a soothing aroma. A rich nikoch. Say that ten times fast. Rich nikoch. That's too hard. Let's just call it soothing aroma. Okay? And every time we have a soothing aroma, I colored it yellow and I put a purple squiggly around it. And we're going to see several soothing aromas in the first seven chapters. Which means we're cooking meat, God's smelling it. And this is the interaction between the priesthood and God. The aroma ascends to God as he is either pleased, as he is pleased and satisfied by it. Pleased with the burnt offering, meal offering, peace offering, the sin offering and the trespass offering. Now I'm going to have to change this, I think. The sin offering and the trespass offering are not soothing aromas to the Lord. I think I need to change that because I found a I found a uh, I found a soothing connection with the sin offering. So stay tuned. It may be that every one of them is, is sweet-smelling savor so long as they're brought appropriately as God accepts the uh, obedience to his design. Remember, Jesus Christ is called a sweet-smelling savor. Ephesians 5.2, we're to walk in love as Christ Jesus loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Jesus was a sweet-smelling savor, and we're supposed to be sweet-smelling savors in our living sacrifice as we walk in the light, as we are the aroma of Christ in every place where God sends us. Okay, so that's the burnt offering from chapter 1. There will be additional instructions given for the burnt offering. You say, well, why don't you just give it in chapter 1? Why do you give certain instructions in chapter 1, and then you're going to give additional details in chapter 6? Yep. That's what he's going to do. Okay? And the reason being, I think in chapter 1, really the focus is on the person, the bringer, the, bringer, the, the Jewish person that's bringing a bowl and says, all right, what do I do now? And you're going you're gonna to put your hand on it, you're going to slit the throat, you're going to cut it up. Um, the instructions are there in chapter 1, really 1 through 5, are really for the worshipers with, with notes along the way for the priests by the time you get to chapters uh, 6 and 7, though, it's all about the priests. And the additional instructions are entirely oriented to Aaron and his sons. And so verses 8 through 13 here of Leviticus 6, uh, you're going to see the additional details for the burnt offering and uh, the things that the priests are supposed to, including their linen robe, their undergarments, and uh, the washing and all the things that they're doing there. All right, that's in chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 2. 
the second offering that's described by the Lord. This one's called the grain offering. Unless you're reading an old King James, the old King James called it a meat offering. And then they kind of updated that in later King James to meal offering. Okay, And it's not meat in any sense other than the word meat used to be used for food, even if the food was not meat. Anyway, it's a grain offering. And that's the best way to understand it. Because the grain uh, is beaten and the grain is, is cooked. The, the grain is what becomes bread once it's cooked. So yeah, the King James has meat offering. Most of the modern translations all have grain offering. And that's New King James, NIV, NASB, and the CSB. In Hebrew it's the mincha. Okay? It's not the ola, it's the mincha. And uh, we should probably have a quiz at some point, maybe next week or the week after, where you can keep track your ola and your mincha and, and your uh, chatath and some of the other offerings that we're going to be getting to, or not. Those of you that are uh, taking the Grace Notes course, though, and uh, subscribe to the Through the Bible Grace Notes course, Warren Dowd's already written the quiz for this, and, and uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll enjoy that. But the idea of a mincha is just a gift, okay? It's a gift, it's a tribute, it's, uh, it's uh, something that you are bequeathing upon somebody. In a secular sense, you're bringing a tribute or you're bringing a gift, like when uh, Jacob kept trying to blackmail his brother Esau and sent gifts on ahead of the convoy to try to buy his favor. Uh, other gifts that we have in, in other places. Used in a religious sense, bringing an offering to God. It's a gift, when we give of our service, when we give of our finances, when we give of whatever we give, we're giving to God and it's a gift. It's a free will offering that we're gift, gifting Him. In the Levitical Code, always with reference to the grain offering and contrasted with the animal sacrifices. So the mincha very frequently coincides with one of the animal sacrifices. A burnt offering may also be expected to have a grain offering to go with it. Or a sin offering may also expect to have a grain offering to go with it. Okay? And by the way, the grain offering likely has a drink offering to go with that. Got to wash it down with something. All right, grain and bread are the staples of daily life. And this sacrifice indicates that our daily lives belong to the Lord. It's like in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We realize that, that this is just bios life, living in this world. We got to eat. And so... Um, the, the grain offering is a testimony to the faithful God who gives us the bread to eat. And uh, also it serves to, to, to feed the priesthood. <laughs> the support of the priesthood is another important element, communicating that those who minister in spiritual matters should be supported in material matters. This was the number one source of food for Aaron and his sons, was the grain offerings. The general rules for the grain offering are indicated here in Leviticus 2 verses 1 through 3. When anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, which means you've got to pulverize it, you've got to beat it, even as our Savior was abused. Um, his offering, a fine flour, he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Oil represents the ministry of the Spirit, frankincense is a sweet aroma. He shall then bring it to Aaron, sons, the priest, he shall take from his handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar. So here comes the grain, and the priest takes a handful, not the whole thing, just a handful, throws it on the altar. That's the part that goes up before the Lord. That's the memorial portion to the Lord. An offering of fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. 
The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord, offerings to the Lord by fire. So it's not an animal sacrifice, but it is a fire offering. The memorial portion gets burned and then the rest goes to the priests. Now, you might bring the grain actually cooked. That's fine. You might bake it in an oven. Great. You might uh, cook it on a griddle. Great. Okay. There's instructions for these different options. And they're presented there in those following verses. So the flour must be fine flour representing the unblemished quality of the Lord's daily life. Oil is poured on it representing the manner which the Lord conducted His daily life filled with the Spirit. Frankincense indicates its sweet smelling savor as a believer lives his life before God the Father. Of course our application there is 2 Corinthians 2, 14-16. We are a fragrance of Christ to God. Specific instructions then follow for the grain offering that is baked in an oven, made on a griddle, or made on a, in a lidded cooking pan. Didn't know it was a cooking show tonight, did you? So they're spelled out in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, depending on how you're cooking it. The memorial portion is burned on the altar and given to the Lord, but the remainder becomes the priest's portion, holy food for a holy priesthood. Okay, you don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing and you don't starve your priest while he's, while he's uh, representing you before the Lord. There's also stipulations here given regarding leaven, honey, and salt. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. Leaven, of course, is a picture of sin. What's wrong with honey? It's a picture of natural sweetness. It shows that sin is rejected and human good is rejected. God, you know, your, your natural sweetness might impress other people, but natural sweetness is not uh, going to earn you favor before God. So no leaven, no honey. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. So a first fruits alt- offering is different from a grain offering. And every grain offering, moreover, you shall season with salt so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Alright, so the priest offers up in smoke the memorial portion, and uh, the remainder goes to the priests. Special procedures are put in place for the early ripened grain that may even precede the first fruits. That's verses 14 through 16. Believers eager to give to the Lord as soon as possible may bring such offerings even before reaping their actual first fruits. You talk about the eager beavers, I mean the the first fruits is the the first fruits. Unless you have some early ripening grain that you decide, you know what, I want to give that to the Lord also. So those procedures are there in verses 14 through 16. There are, beyond chapter 2, there are additional instructions for the application of the grain offering found in chapter 6. And we'll get to those on Sunday. Those are coming up um, in two more classes after tonight. So stay tuned for Leviticus chapter 6. Alright, Leviticus chapter 3. The third offering described is the peace offering. The peace offering. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, if he is going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before the Lord. Now starting with the peace offerings, we start to see 
uh, female animals that are eligible to be sacrificed as a peace offering, not a whole burnt offering, not a grain offering, well, not a grain offering, but animal offerings, not a whole burnt offering. Those are male only. But for the peace offering, they can be male or female. The peace offering is the zevach shalomim. That is the, uh, of course, we have shalom for peace. It's a plural of shalom. It's the zevach. A zevach is really anything that's slaughtered. Uh, so it might be a sacrifice. It might be dinner. It's just an animal that's dying. It's a zevach. It's a slaughter. Okay. I think you can even use it for a military slaughter. Um, possibly. I got to double check. Anyway, in any event, a zevach shalomim. It is a sacrifice of, uh, of peace, or peace plural, pieces. The peace offering may come from the herd or from the flock, no birds, okay? Only the herd or the flock. The peace offering may be male or female, but continues to be an unblemished animal, just like it was in chapter 1 for the burnt offering. Whereas the burnt offering communicated the doctrine of atonement, the peace offering, uh, offering communicates the peace or the reconciliation that we have in Christ. See, we understand these doctrinally, theologically, as we can see with our hindsight in the New Testament and appreciate the position that we have in Christ. Back then, they had to have prophetic revelation. They had to have teaching that would come to them from their prophets and their priests and the Levites and whoever else could communicate the doctrine of what these sacrifices would represent. But of course, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So we can appreciate the peace that we have with Christ and uh, we can see the uh, the parallel there with the peace offering in Leviticus chapter 3. All right, again, identification with a slaughtered innocent substitute is still required. The peace is exhibited in a fellowship dining event between priests, Levites, and common people. So rather than just offering the whole thing up, God gets everything and we get nothing, that's the burnt offering. This offering, there are portions that are offered up in smoke, but the bulk of it is the, is, the, is the feast that the offerer and the priests and the Levites get to participate in together. The offering is an offering as food. We're going to see a lot of eating in these verses. The fat portions go to the Lord. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 9, verse 10. The fat is the Lord's. Fat, fat, fat. Verse 10, fat. So the two kidneys with the fat that is on them. Verse 14, fat. Verse 15, kidneys, fat. Verse 16, the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar as food and offering by fire for a soothing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. I love that. All fat is the Lord's. Somebody's making t-shirts with that as a, as a logo and I, I, I need to get one. Okay. All fat is the Lord's. Kind of interesting. Some people have written on you know the dietary values here, how God was giving Israel a low-fat diet because God was keeping all the fat Himself, and they were the priests and the people were eating the the trimmed you know fat, low-fat uh, remainder. You know, whether it was for nutritional value or for doctrinal value, 
or whatever other reasons he had. We're going to discuss this when we get to clean and unclean animals uh, and, and the view that, oh, God was giving them a scientific preview of, of uh, hygienic uh, nutritional items there. Um, I'll save that for another night because I'm running out of time here tonight. All fat goes to the Lord and the meat must be thoroughly cooked. No blood was to be consumed. This gets stressed over and over. No blood. You shall not eat any fat. You shall not eat any blood. Don't consume the fat. Don't consume the blood. Okay? Was that for health reasons? For spiritual reasons because of what these things represent. All right. That's way too fast to handle Leviticus 1 through 3, but that's what the schedule calls for. So that's what we've done. What we haven't done, and I guess we'll have some, some discussions on this upcoming, is when do you bring a burnt offering? When do you bring a sin offering? When do you bring a peace offering? When do you bring... It says, if a man brings an offering, well, when does he do that? Well, he does it when he's required to do it, and when's that? Okay, Under what conditions is he ordered to bring this? Does he have to do this 10 times a year, 20 times a year? How frequently does a typical, you know, a typical, uh, you know, a, a bumbling Jewish guy from wherever, I mean, w- does he bring this every time he commits a personal sin? That's what we have to, that's a myth we have to bust, okay? And especially tomorrow. We're going to come back tomorrow. We have chapter 4 and 5. We're going to talk about the sin offering and the trespass offering. And And I used to think that, uh, you know, every time I committed a personal sin, I would have to come with an animal, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, just driving to church on 183 would have been, you know, two goats, a bull, and a ram, probably. And then more animals, more dead animals going home. That's not how that works, okay? And so we'll talk about that as well. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your grace and faithfulness. Thank you for these classes. Thank you for opening our eyes. And uh, most of all, Father, I thank you that I'm not a Levitical priest. I thank you for the dispensation of the church and what we can look back with the hindsight and what we can look back with the book of Hebrews in our Bible, Father, so that we can see the spiritual reality that was communicated in these animal rituals. Father, uh, uh, please, Father, keep us uh, on track in terms of the shadow versus the substance so that we never blend the two. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.